Welcome to Demand Does the Six Questions, where the same six questions can tell a unique story. I am your host, Demand, father of two, husband of one, and leader of this here Demodcast. My next guest is a professor at Fanshawe College in London, Ontario. But that's not why he's here. He's also a musician in the band called The Phantoms, which you can find on SoundCloud, which I will include in the show notes. But that's not why he's here. He has also earned a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. So, he's, so I'm glad he's that far away, but that is not why he's here. He's here because he's the Kevin Hart half of the game designer team, the Bamboozle Brothers, and he may have some tips for this fellow podcaster. Give it up for Sin Fung Lim. <laughs> that has got to be the best intro I've ever had. I love wrestling. I like I like wrestling a lot, and that's some pretty good promo. You should you should consider it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, getting out there and uh, cutting some promo for people. Why, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. And thank you for taking the time out to talk to a perfect stranger. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Before we get into the six questions, tell my listeners where you want to be found on the internet. Sure, you can find me at Sen Fung Lim. That's S-E-N-F-O-O-N-G-L-I-M. And that's on Twitter. And so if you follow me there, I talk a lot about game design, anime, a lot about games and role-playing games and social justice stuff. You know, things. Things that people should talk about. Right. And you are a proud papa of two? Yep. I have two boys. Elijah is 13 and Ethan is 17 and he's going to university in September. And it's kind of freaking us out. It's like, yeah, he's actually a... A full-grown person-ish. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready to answer the six questions? Locked and loaded, man. Let's go. Question number one. When did you know you wanted to be a game designer? You know, I, I think I, I knew that I wanted to be a game designer. Probably... <laughs> and I say that because I was at university for nine years. So normally people are like four years of university. It's like, no, I'll double that plus one. Uh, yeah, I think it was sometime in the middle of my university career when I said, hey, this is interesting. And I'd always designed games as a kid. Whenever a school project would come up, it would end, invariably end up being a game of some kind that I made to teach that process of, you know, mitochondria, do this, and I'd make a game or uh, whatever it was. So I've always designed games, but I think actually doing it and saying, I want to actually make a game that could be sold or could be a product that people would want. It came about through playing a whole, whole, whole lot of Magic the Gathering. <laughs> that game, I think, changed a lot of people's lives. Like when I talk to other designers about, you know, hey, what game got you interested in game design? Magic the Gathering is one that comes up probably more than any other. And I think it's because people got so into it that they could actually kind of peek behind the curtains, right? They could like Wizard of Oz, the thing and say, oh, that's what Richard Garfield is doing behind all of these numbers and cards and types and mana and all that kind of stuff. This is where the math is. And so I really got into developing like fan sets of cards, but we'd make all these like fake cards and we just make them and print them and play with them for fun. That's really what kind of got me thinking about like the hardcore design elements of like oh this is why this costs this much and this is why these two you know keywords work together well and this is what won't work together and that's when i really kind of got into the like the cerebral part of game design and that was yeah probably in my fourth or fifth year of university so that's what i kind of knew that i wanted to do that and it wasn't until like 10 years later when i actually started being able to do it when i had like you know my family, my career kind of unlock. And, you know, I, I finished school and I was, I was going, I was doing things. I was going places. And then I also had time now to, to spend on gaming. I have to tell the story of how I gave up gaming to pursue my academics. 
And it's it's not true that I gave up gaming. I just gave up certain types of games. I gave up magic big time. I sold all my cards, paid for my, you know, my postgraduate degrees by selling all my cards. Oh man. Uh, I had a lot of cards. Gave up role-playing games, uh, which I just recently got back into writing again, so it's good. I gave up, you know, Warhammer. So any other big lifestyle games, the ones that like take a whole lot of brain space, I gave up. But I didn't give up gaming because gaming is quintessentially like something that humans need to do. And so I kept on playing board games. Uh, and the reason why board games for me worked is because they were things that you could put away on the shelf and not think about. If you've ever played Dungeons and Dragons or something like that, you end up like thinking about your character like for the whole week in between the sessions. You're like thinking about, oh, what am I going to do next? What am I going to buy when I get that extra seven gold pieces, you know, or whatever. And the same thing with Magic, you're constantly building decks. And with Warhammer, you're always like using an army builder to like think about, oh, if I take a plasma pistol out here, I can put a chain sword on this guy. Yeah, my nerdery knows no bounds. And so I had to kind of put a boundary on that and say, no more of these lifestyle games for me. I need actually like lifetime to like spend with my wife and my kids. So no more of those, but definitely board games. And then when my friend Jay, the other, you know, the gargantuan half of the Bamboos Brothers, the, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the Bamboos Brothers, <laughs> he moved out to um, British Columbia, which is on the opposite side of the world from, from of Canada for me. And when he moved out there, we decided that we'd start designing board games. And this wasn't the first time we decided this. We decided this about five years before he moved out. We tried to make board games and it just didn't work well. We just you know, failed and gave up. Uh, and this time it was like, well, if we fail at this, we're not going to have much to talk about because we're across, there's like three or 4,000 kilometers between us now. And we have, you know, different friend sets, different lives, three hours apart in time. What are we going to talk about? So we have to make this work. This is, this is our thing. Uh, and remarkably we did. So that was when I really got to be a game designer, which was probably about a decade after I had started thinking about game design as a thing you know not necessarily a profession but i'd like to make one and that i ended up making many so there you go so your career was saved by the power of friendship there's an anime or a manga in there somewhere i think oh 100 <laughs> <laughs> percent. the uh the power of friendship is an amazing thing why we decided to to do this it was honestly like if you look if you think about it it's like oh here are two dudes who can't just call each other up and tell each other that they love each other and talk about stuff. Right. Mm. We just can't talk. Mm -hmm. We have to do something like, you know, all men, not all men, but lots of men think they have to do something to be friends with the person. And that's really what it was. It was like this last ditch attempt to, to remain friends. That's kind of sad when you think about it, happy that it worked out, but sad when you think about the fact that a lot of people feel this way, especially guys like, what am I going to talk about? if we're not playing hockey together anymore, right? Or, or something like that. Talk to your guy friends, you know, even if you're not doing something together. <laughs> Pandemic has been real weird, right? You're not able to do most of the things that you probably do with your, your, your guy friends, but they're still your friends, right? So call them, talk to them, reach out. It's important for your mental health and into the future. You mentioned that I'm a professor. And what I study is developmental psychology. One of the things that we, we talk about a lot is aging. And in aging, one thing you'll find pretty much across the board, especially for dudes who are more likely like our father's age, you know, around 80, 70, around there, that they basically have no friends other than their wives. And it's a very lonely existence. And it's this, this thing, like statistically, you can, you can count them, where men whose wives die earlier than they do die almost, you know, immediately after. Wow. And it's not all of them, but it's a lot of them. And a lot of it is because they lack a whole bunch of social support because they didn't have any friends outside of the, the marriage dyad or the, the pair, right? So uh, so men die earlier anyways, right? Just biologically uh, for lots of reasons. And, and they just run out of friends faster. <laughs> I mean, if you want to be really cold about it, their, their, friend, their friend group dies off sooner. And also they can't participate in a lot of the activities that they thought made them friends together. You know, oh, we don't play, I don't go fishing anymore because, you know, I can't, you know, climb down the riverbank. So I guess 
we're not longer friends. And a lot of guys don't transition over into the quiet activities well because for some reason you know in society they don't think of that as manly enough to do you know go and sit with their friends and have coffee and talk so you know i'm hoping that there's a big shift in a lot of society you know you definitely definitely have it there's definitely people who do but there's also a lot of people who don't a lot of guys who don't so find something to do with your friends that isn't necessarily physically involved and you know do that uh, or don't do anything and just talk and talk about your feelings. It's really important. <laughs> Question number two. What do you wish you had known when you first started out? There's a couple of things. There's a lot of traps in game design. There's a lot of things that people tell you as they, they sort of propose them as maxims. as like, this is the way it is. And it's really not that way. It's a lot more nuanced. It's that way when you're beginning, but you should change as you as you progress in your career or you know whatever you're doing. Even if it's a hobby, as you get better and better at these things, you can get rid of some of the earlier scaffolding. So, for example, one of the things is make games you like, and that's true for a lot of things. Like write the songs that speak to you, write the stories about things you know, make the games that you like is great to start. But eventually, if you want to make it in the industry, because games are a product that are sold to other people, you have to learn how to make games that other people like. Because if it's just you that likes it and people like you, you've just sold to a very thin of a very thin pie wedge. Whereas if you are making games that you think other people may like, this game isn't really for me. I don't love this game. I'll play it, but I don't love it. But I know X number of people that will love this you might have actually just made a better selling game than the game that you absolutely adore. A couple other things that are stated as fact, but really shift as you go over time. A lot of things get talked about, like as never do this and always do this. And as we all know, that's not how life works. And there's sometimes where things, you know, everybody will point out the nine games that broke that rule and did really well they'll forget that there's like a thousand and one games that didn't do well that broke those rules as well. But saying things in nevers and always, I think leads us to some problems. This is very much a Twitter thing, right? Where you only have X number of characters to do something. And so when you get it out, you're not able to be as nuanced as you want. And I think electronic communication has really changed how people communicate and how unnuanced some of that stuff is, as we've seen over the last couple of years with Trump and with COVID and all this kind of stuff. Whereas if they only had a few more characters, maybe we'd fight less. <laughs> maybe we'd fight less. I think one of the biggest things to know about game design is that empathy is a huge tool for game designers because we have to understand what's going on in other people's heads. If we can't understand that or why people play or that people might play differently than I, or that people might want to play for different reasons than me, you know, I, I think we're going to be less of a good game designer. For example, like I don't understand speed runs in video games. I don't. I don't get why people watch them. I don't get why people do them. But I understand that people do like them. And I get that people do like to do them. And that's a very big difference. Like I know it's not for me. But I also know that it is for other people. And in me not getting it and not understanding it, for some people, that's like a turnoff. It's like, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I'm not even going to think about it. Whereas my job is to say, well, why? Why do you like that? And what's important about this? How can I elicit that feeling in other ways that I might understand, right? Or, you know, I know I'm not going to play it this way, but... I'm super happy for you to play it this way. So there's a lot of stuff that has to do with empathy in terms of understanding how other people think and feel and why and their motivations for doing certain behaviors is really important as a game designer. Cause that's really at the bottom line, a lot of what we're doing is saying, Hey, here's how I'd like you to behave. And if you behave this way, I'd give you, I'll give you points. Right. And <laughs> that's another piece of advice right there. If people aren't behaving the way you want in your game, you should check out how you're giving them points. You know, if you're not giving them points for a behavior that you want to see, chances are they're not going to do it. There's actually quite a bit of psychology and, and you know, how games are designed or why we do things the way we do in games. Uh, you know, I think people 
who are starting out in game design just need to be need to think broadly. I actually get more from you know listening to podcasts that aren't about game design that, that I can bring into game design than I do from podcasts that are, that are about game design specifically. So you know, I, I think having a broad library of things to influence you, having empathy towards other people, playing a whole bunch of games, knowing what you like, but even probably better, knowing what you don't like, and then analyzing why people actually like that, I think is really, really important um, in order to, to get better at what you're doing quicker. You mentioned a game that you love versus a game that will sell and you have to, you know, there's a Venn diagram that you're looking for there. Yeah, uh, pretty much. <laughs> what one of your projects personally had, or list of projects that you've done have fit that diagram for you that you can think of? I think most recently it's probably Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo, the Escape from the Haunted Manor Coded Chronicles game. So Jay and I developed a system called, called the Coded Chronicles system, which is basically like our homage to point-and-click adventures from like the 80s and 90s. Games like King's Quest and Police Quest and Space Quest, all the stuff that you know Double Fine did and, and LucasArts, Day of the Tentacle, and Zach McCracken, Monkey Island. You know, mm-hmm. all those games are you know defined my childhood pretty much. So I love those. And Jay loves them. And we wanted to make a system that worked like that. And the reason why I think it worked well is because it mechanically works super well with a big group of people where everybody has a character, everybody has like one ability that they are very special for, and that everybody has a book for their character where they read out lines, basically in the voice of those characters. So, you know, Shaggy's <laughs> Shaggy's power or ability in the game is to eat. You think, what is that useful for it? And it's not. Probably like 80% of the time, it's just a joke. It's like, <laughs> the lines are stuff like... <laughs> So they're like, I'd eat that carpet, but it'd be better with it if it was filled with burrito beans or something stupid like that, right? <laughs> um, and it's hilarious because people just love reading it. And they talk in the voices and they get into it. And I had a friend actually just the other night email me and say, I need to know what's in envelope whatever because it's missing from my box. And so I said, oh, that's too bad. Here, let me get that for you. And she said, oh, no rush. We're just having a, a good time reading, trying to eat everything with Shaggy. <laughs> And, and it's funny because this group that I'm talking about, my friend Trisha, her husband is like a five-time world champion puzzle quester. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, Huihua is is ridiculous at solving puzzles. Like he is he is like a puzzle master. He's like written crossword puzzles for the New York Times and stuff like that. Uh, so he's a big deal. And her group was having a huge fun time not solving puzzles and just eating stuff with Shaggy and listening to people read out the Shaggy lines with those voices and our ridiculous attempts at humor. So yeah, I think that game really hit home with people because it it resonates with a certain audience with basically anybody who ever liked Scooby-Doo ever. And the thing about Scooby-Doo is Scooby-Doo has been around for 50 years straight. It's not like, you know, Star Wars where there's movies and there's cartoons and then, you know, there's a lack of stuff for a couple of years and, oh, another blockbuster and then some action figures and, oh, you know, a video game. And now Star Wars is obviously a, a franchise that keeps on going and keeps on going. But there's for a while, like in the 70s and 80s and even into the 90s where there was no Star Wars for, you know, years. But Scooby-Doo has literally run almost straight for 50 whole years. Wow. Right? So, and, and the thing is, I've seen all of it. I love Scooby-Doo. So I've seen every single thing that's ever been made for Scooby-Doo that has been like broadcast. So movies, television, you know, animated features, those types of things. But I have watched every single episode ever and every single movie ever. So because we knew it so well, uh, and Jay really likes Scooby-Doo as well, we were able to build in all of the tropes, you know, Daphne gets, you know, in danger, Scooby sniffing things and, you know, making his body into different shapes and all these kind of things that, you know, are tropes from the show we incorporated into the game. So everybody's like, oh, I'm waiting for that thing and it happened and oh, when it happened, it's so good. So yeah, there, there's a lot to it. We we also did, we did some switching up too. Like, so just mentioning Daphne, Daphne has always been danger pro Daphne. That's her nickname in the show. And she's kind of been seen historically as this damsel in distress, but I don't know if you knew, you know, she has a black belt 
in you know martial arts and <laughs> so like in our story we wrote it specifically that she isn't a damsel in distress she doesn't use karate or anything but she gets out of her own problems herself right so she doesn't need a man to help her or something like that awesome uh so yeah there's there's a lot of ways you could subtly switch things up so that it's not so dated we get that a lot because i work a lot in intellectual property games so you know if you name a big license i've probably pitched for it or made a game for it and you know historically a lot of these things might not age as well as you'd think things are products of their time i get that you know obviously with a lifespan of 50 years there's been a whole lot of unpacking to do about some of the things that have been portrayed in Scooby-Doo over the years. We actually had to redesign the game so that Velma wasn't the one doing everything because mm-hmm. <laughs> Velma's like super smart, right? So she's the one who figures out everything usually. And so in our game, we had to make sure that she wasn't always there, that she wasn't always the one figuring out everything. And honestly, the one trope that we forgot <laughs> to add, and which could have been useful for this, is that Velma almost always loses her glasses in... Sometime in the episode, she'll be searching for her glasses and she'll like end up feeling the ghost's foot or something like that. <laughs> so uh, we forgot to add that one, but maybe next time we'd like to do another Scooby-Doo. You know, Scooby-Doo is awesome. So there you go. That That is probably the game that has made the most impact in terms of people, you know, giving us feedback about it, about how much fun they had with their kids. That's the other thing is that for playing with other people and people like games that they could play with their kids. So that game, and then also our other big game was Junkart. Junkart is like this stacking game. And that game, you know, people still to this day, it's it's like six years old probably, send us pictures of stuff they've stacked. Oh, that's <laughs> just awesome. send, Look what I did. Look what my kid did. He's only six years old or whatever. And it's like, yeah, that's awesome. And I love seeing it. So never, ever, ever stop sending me pictures of Junkart Towers because they are, they're constantly amazing. So and it's just super fun to see people playing the game. Question number four. What is your go-to order at your favorite hometown restaurant? And also, what's your game night snack food? I am super fond of noodles, but when I order from my favorite hometown restaurant, I really like tendon. Okay. I don't know. Like, I like oxtail, and I like anything that's like, like I like marrow. I like, I like tendon. I like stuff. Interesting. <laughs> wow. Know. That to me is good eating. <laughs> and then the other one that I like is uh, lobako, which is uh, like a spicy radish cake. So I enjoy both of those. And so I'll always order those and kind of like sit them to the side and mm-hmm. savor it and save some for tomorrow. And hopefully my kids won't touch it <laughs> and that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's my favorite uh, restaurant thing to get. And then for snack food and game night, it's, it's funny. I don't actually, you know, think about that much. I don't order. I don't, I don't necessarily eat a lot when I play games. So I don't know. I don't know what that would be. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I don't know. Water? Is water a snack? You know what? It's it's honest. I'll, all I ask yeah. people, I was like, is that a good answer? I was like, it's honest. That's all I ask oh, for. Yeah. Therefore, it's a good answer. Oh, you know, maybe maybe something like edamame. That'd be good. That'd be like healthy and salty. So, okay, edamame. That's my new one. I, I haven't had it at a game night, but it's, it's what I'm going to make from now on. Question. Number four, what are you curious about? I've always been curious about like how people learn and think. It's interesting because I think growing up, I didn't have a really good sense of empathy. I really wasn't empathetic at all. I didn't understand why people couldn't you know, do math or something like that. And then as I worked into college and university and then into my postgraduate degrees, I sort of came to this kind of understanding, oh, not everybody gets this. Not everybody understands this stuff, whatever it is, for various reasons, for whatever reasons it was. It wasn't magical. It wasn't like snap all of a sudden, I'm a super empathetic man. No, it wasn't like that. It's like this gradual change in my understanding of how people work. And then more and more, as I moved out of clinical work into teaching, 
that became very apparent that, oh, I've got to be more empathetic. I've got to understand people. I've got to, you know, not make assumptions about people. I've got to be curious about people uh, and how they work and what makes them tick and how they learn and all these things in order to do my job better. I think it works for game design as well. Like game design is literally, like I said before, being empathetic. What makes people tick? What makes people want to engage with this particular game or these particular dice or these cards or whatever? Why do certain games work better than others for certain people? And so I've always been really curious about how people figure things out, how people learn and how they communicate these ideas to each other through different ways, whether it's graphical, whether it's language. That's uh, what I study actually is communication disorders. So when children can't write or speak, that's when I get involved with them. It's fascinating, actually, to think about all that stuff. And then how do I apply that to game design? And it's it's actually really funny. I can now make links between like jujitsu and game design and game design and my teaching and all these kind of things. It's it's just these, you sort of start to see patterns, maybe some that don't exist. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but uh, you start to relate all these things that you understand at a deeper, deeper level to each other. Oh, it's just like this, or it's kind of like that. I'm really curious about how other people see the world and themselves in it, uh, how other people feel represented or not, how other people think about culture and all those things where the differences between people are really interested to me, more, more so even though they're the similarities between people. Even just things about the difference in, say, people who are Chinese, like me, but live in China and their perception of the world versus my perception of the world as a Chinese person. I was born in China. I've never lived in China. I've only ever really lived in Canada. And what my perception of the world is, despite the fact that I look like somebody who lives, who is from China, right? And I'm treated like somebody who is Chinese by other people, even though I am, you know, born and bred in Canada. It's this interesting intersection where we're thinking about, you know, how, how do people, how do people learn and how do people deal with life in, in these ways and how do they navigate all this stuff that's going around? So I like thinking, <laughs> I'm curious about lots of stuff. I'm curious about, you know, why people think the way they think or do what they do. And even when it's something I think is ostensibly wrong, well, I mean, why do you think that way and how can we you know, work to change that thinking, or maybe I'm thinking the wrong way. That That's a legitimate thing that could happen. Is it something where we don't see eye to eye, where we don't want the same thing? Or more often, is it we want the same thing, we just don't see how to get there in the same way, or who's going to pay for that, or who's going to get that thing and who's not going to get that thing? I think that's usually more of the issue when we're talking about differences in humans, like a lot of, most humans want exactly the same thing. They do, you know, they want to be secure and healthy and, you know, have enough money and food on their plate and, you know, that stuff. That's what they want. Everybody wants that. It's just a question of who gets it and at whose expense, you know, who's paying for this? How much do they get? They didn't do anything. Why do they get anything? You know, that kind of stuff boggles my mind how some people think, but also, you know, looking back at history, looking back at familial history and how people are taught and how people learn and propaganda, it makes you kind of understand a little bit better why people think some of the things they think, even when they're wrong or wrong-ish or whatever people want to call it. Different, different. Good some of it is blatantly wrong though. And frustrating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you probably know as much as I know in terms of being people of color that racism is, is, is racism. It is. And then when people try to tell me that that's not racist, it's like, well, wait a minute. I think I might be a better judge of what is racist than you. It's an interesting, interesting thing. Trying to see things from different people's perspective. Like I get why you say that, but how about you put yourself in my shoes and think about why I might think this is racist or why I might think that, there's an issue with how something is being presented or how something is being said. You know, a lot of people, 
over the last years. Like, what's cultural appropriation? There's no such thing as cultural appropriation. And well, let's talk about that. Let's see where you come from. Let's see where I come from. And we'll figure it out in the end. You know, what is appreciation? What is appropriation? Where's that fine line? And is it okay to cross it? And, you know, a lot of people would be like, well, the market will tell you. You should you shouldn't just, you know, get all up in arms about that kind of stuff. It's like, well, if I don't get up in arms about it, then how's the market going to tell them what we think about that thing? It's been a year. It's been like weird two years uh, where life has got really out of hand for a lot of people. A lot of people have shown, uh, you know, who they are and how they think and very loudly and very vocally. I'm looking forward to a time when people aren't so frustrated and aren't so isolated and aren't so alone that all they can do is type, you know, long screeds on the internet. Because I think that's what a lot of people did. A lot of very angry, very, you know, isolated people. And, it, you know, there, there's definitely mental health issues that go along with COVID to the lockdown that, uh, you know, let's not discount the fact that hundreds of thousands of people have died from the actual virus. And a lot of people are currently uh, thinking in a very binary pattern. Like it's, it's like, well, I mean, there's a good example. It's like lockdown bad because, you know, domestic violence, because suicide, because loss of jobs, because all these things. And the fact is that we've lost hundreds of thousands of people from the earth because of COVID. And they're only seeing, you know, parts of it, or they're not willing to see the other part of it. We also don't know how many people would have been lost if we didn't do any of the lockdown procedures around the world, right? So it's this weird thing, like you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. The governments who we voted in are just doing the best they can for the most people. Is it perfect? Can't be, because we're all individuals, we're all people who are very different. And so a lot of feathers are going to be ruffled by what's best for the most people. And it's tough. It is a, it is a tough, tough situation. I get that. My, my heart goes out to people whose businesses have been closed because of this. I guess the, the answer is you could start a new business. It's, it, it sounds really, 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 really uh, off the cuff to say that. But, uh, you know, it also sounds really cold and harsh when people say things like, well, you know, just uh, it's only the old people. <laughs> It's like, I got some old people in my family, man. What are you talking right. about? You know, they're, they're or the medically fragile or something like that. It's like, well, I mean, shouldn't we be protecting the most fragile people, the people who are at risk the most? Isn't that who we should protect, be protecting as people who are strong against this? Right. And, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think anything was right or wrong. I will we'll know in like 20, 30 years after some analysis. But this was a big blip in the history of the world. Question number five. Is there anything I should have asked but didn't? I was going to say, because it's a joke, ask me about my feminist agenda, but I already kind of talked about it. So. <laughs> or parts of it, because I mean, it's uh, that's a joke from Mockingbird, the comic book where she's wearing this shirt. Or is it Captain Marvel? I can't remember. No, it's Mockingbird. Pretty sure it's Mockingbird. I don't think there's any real questions that uh, I can think of. Don't worry, because no, I've got sure one. <laughs> at least one more. There's at least one more. Actually, I have one just in case you didn't have anything. Okay, cool. Because <laughs> I was going to ask you about your dedication to mentorship. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I believe that children are our future. No, I believe in mentorship. I believe really, really strongly in mentorship because I've only gotten to where I am through the mentorship of others, right? If you want to get real psychological about it, it's based on <laughs> Vygotsky's theory of the zone of proximal development, where a person can't do stuff without mentorship. And then as they get mentorship, then they can do it and we remove the mentorship. And now there's more stuff that they can't do. We have a mentor to lead them through that. And so the way people learn is, in social learning is through mentorship, through the relationship between a mentor and a mentee, a master and an apprentice, whatever you want to call it, like a, a Jedi and a Padawan. 
I think mentorship is really important in this world where we're so disconnected from people, especially now, where having that one person, that kind of touchstone, that guiding force can make the difference between failure and success for some people. I think giving back to new generations is something that is, I don't know, I, I see it as a duty. I see it as my own duty. Whether or not other people see it as a duty, I, I think it is of, of mine. I have a vast repository of knowledge in my head that didn't get put there just by me. Like, you know, it's there because of other people. We talk in game design often of, you know, I stand on the shoulder of giants, uh, meaning that, you know, we just remix other people's games and, you know, use other people's mechanisms and make games out of those. And I think the truth, the same is with mentorship that we've got so many people out there who now in the digital age, we can just like post something on a forum and it, you know, somebody will give us an answer, which is great. I would suggest that finding a mentor, somebody that you could go to on a more frequent basis or a more personal basis or with deeper, deeper problems that you need a sounding board for, that you you know need a solution for, you need some advice for, you just want somebody to listen to you, is really important for creatives to have that sounding board. It's part of the process of gaining empathy, right? Of, of understanding how other people think about the same solution from maybe a different side of that problem. The thing about games that's really interesting is that we might know how it makes us feel, but we don't know how it makes anybody else feel. And because games are meant to be played with other people simultaneously, your experience is your experience. Their experience is their experience. And they can be extemporal. They can be not within the same time frame. Whereas if you're sitting around the table with a group of people and you're involved in, say, a game of Dungeons and Dragons where you're telling the same story, you're in there together, cooperatively making this experience happen. The same thing in board games, even the board games are a little bit less, but you're, you know, collaborating to make this experience happen, which is very different than lots of other, other things. And so understanding, you know, how people think and feel is really important. And mentorship can help you get there a little faster because now you're, you're actually involving somebody else in the process, not somebody who is necessarily a co-designer, though they might be, or an equal, though they might be. It's somebody who you're looking up to as somebody who's just gone before. A lot of people think, oh, you know, to be a mentor, I need to be like super experienced and I need to have all this experience under my belt. Here to tell you that's a lie. <laughs> In martial arts, you know, we use the term tifu or sensei or whatever. And really all that sensei means is somebody who's gone before. Somebody who's like a few steps further down the road than you are. That is somebody who is a, a sensei, who has gone there, done the things before you did. You may actually be better than them. You may end up being worlds better than them at whatever you're doing, but they were there first. And therefore they could lead you down that path and say, hey, there's a, a rock there. And, oh, that's a thorny bush. Don't step there, right? They can just help you. It does not necessarily mean they're the expert. They're more like a guide, right? So as a martial arts instructor, you know, I, I've been doing jujitsu for years and I'm pretty good, but I'm also five foot two and 125 pounds. So I can't really, I really honestly can't tell much to like some of the competitors I train that are like 250 pounds, six foot three. Like, what am I going to tell them? I can't, I could teach them the techniques, but then they've kind of, kind of got to get through it themselves and figure out how these work for their body type and their arm length and whatever else there is, these nuances, right? The nuance stuff is not what I'm there for, for them. They're, them, I'm just there to guide them through the learning process. This is how you learn. Here's a mistake that you've made. I can watch you from the outside. That's the other thing that mentors are really good at, right? Is watching you from a third party perspective but having your best interest in mind and telling you when, you know, oh, you done goofed. That's not so good. Let's change that. And then, you know, uh, for people who are very similar to me, like in body shape and size as a martial arts instructor, I'm really, like now I'm in there. Now, you know, let's get this game plan. Let's do all these things. And it's not that I abandon the other people who are giants. It's just they know and I know there may be a better mentor for them who is 
that size, that strength, that capacity, that has that fighting style. Now, if there was a big, big guy who fought like me, for sure, I'd, I'd mentor them. That's different though, right? So, you know, I think mentorship is, is really important. We do it, I do it professionally, uh, you know, as a therapist. We have students through placement in clinic all the time. Obviously, now I'm a professor. I think that's really what my job is, is really to mentor them. I, I tell my students this all the time. I don't know what uh, you know my chair thinks about this, but I tell them, I actually don't care if you remember anything that I taught you. <laughs> I, I care that you learned how to learn. That's what I really care about. And this is just one subject that, you know, maybe next time when you take another subject, you'll be even better at learning because what I'm trying to drill into you here is not necessarily the core of whatever psychological stuff I'm teaching at the time, but it's how do you learn these psychological things? How do you apply them in clinical practice? That's what I want to teach. You know, I think mentorship is that guiding force. Uh, teaching is really that, like, this is what you need to know. And I do that, of course, because we have learning outcomes that we have to meet and students have to meet them. But I think the role of the mentor is bigger than that. It's a little bit wider of a scope, I guess, is a word, a way to put that. And so a game design, yeah, I mean, find somebody who you click with, maybe not as a co-designer, but maybe as somebody who, you know, you could just, hey, can I reach out to you every now and then when I have a problem and can I pick your brain? That's really what a mentor is there for. And the tabletop mentorship program, which is something that's going on right now, is really good for that. Uh, you'll you'll link up with somebody. There's a uh, like a, an algorithm that they use to join people together. And that's really good because it's hard to find your own mentor. It really is. It's difficult. It should really be like this natural process that you find somebody you fit. They think you fit. I think you fit. As opposed to like, you're the mentor and you're the mentee and that's what the way it's going to be. Uh, and so this process sort of takes the middle ground where we know we can't get to meet everybody and pick our own mentors, but we have a process by which you know people answer questions on both sides as the, as the mentor and the mentee, and they make like a best fit. Like these are the people who we think fit best together. And it's really important that there is that good fit because if you're not, if you don't have a good fit with each other, if you don't have a good style, like a stylistic fit with each other, it doesn't matter how good that mentor is. It's just not going to work, right? Because it's personality. This is a relationship. Right. Just like every other relationship there, yeah. there's going to got there's going to be ebbs and flows and you guys, you know, you're going to have, I don't want to say growing pains, you're going to have differences and, you know, you both have oh, different yeah. roles for living. So yeah, you know, those things yeah. have to mesh. That's a lot. Yeah. No, I mean, growing pains is a, is a perfect word for it. You know, if you don't jive, you might want to find a different, a different mentor. Like, Hey, we just, you know, we're not seeing eye to eye. I'm not getting what I need out of this relationship. Make a move. That's okay. You know, a good mentor will say, no, I want you to find, exactly what you want. I have lots of students who drop out in first year of our program. Our program is like a professional program. And it's like, I'm glad that you dropped out. Not because I didn't like you, not because I don't want you here, but because I think you need to be where you feel that you need to be. And if this is not the place, then I, I really don't think you should be here. I don't want you here learning something that you don't want to learn. I don't, because they'll be taking care of people who are very vulnerable right? That's, that's the job at the end of the program. It's like, you are going to be somebody who works in service of people with developmental disabilities. And if you're not here for the right reasons, you know, then don't be here. That's okay. I'd rather you go into whatever program you think you have a better fit with. Don't feel bad about dropping out of something that you, you got into thinking you knew what it was finding out. Oh, it's that. Oh, I don't like that. You don't have to stick it out. You don't. It's okay. Same thing with mentors. Like if somebody you thought was a good mentor or thought would be a good mentor for you turns out not to be, or vice versa, if you're the mentor and somebody's the mentee, it's not working out. You know, it's just like any other relationship. You could fix it. You could try to fix it. Or you could say, hey, let's move on apart from each other. And that's okay. Question number six. If you could create a new holiday, what would it commemorate? <laughs> it's interesting because Juneteenth just became a thing, which is awesome. So for all y'all who don't understand Juneteenth, <laughs> Juneteenth was not the day that slavery was repealed. Just 
Let's get that out of the way. <laughs> Such a strange thing that people, oh yeah, it's the day that slavery is revealed. Nope. No, it was not. But I would do something similar, but for the day that the, the Chinese Exclusion Act was repealed, that's what I would do. Some people are saying, well, why do you constantly play the race card? And I would say to them, because all y'all aren't playing it enough. <laughs> like, right. they, like, people ask me that a lot. It's like, why are you so loud about racism and things like that? Why is everything racist to you? Because you don't think it is, and it is. People get all on this, you know, woke and SJW and all this kind of stuff. It's like, first of all, I'm a social justice bard. Thank you very much. Not a warrior, a bard. <laughs> if you live with your head on a swivel because of the color of your skin, you have every right to be loud about whatever you want to be loud about in some ways. Will we make more traction if we are nice about it? I don't know. I mean, you and I probably grew up in the time when the word on the street was, oh, I don't see color, right? You know, for the last 30, 40 years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where's that gotten us? I mean, it, it got us to a powder keg of last summer right. where you know, a whole bunch of major, major, we're not talking like little towns. We're talking major American cities were on fire because of this willful ignorance to see and celebrate the differences between people, right? So that's that's the thing, right? And, you know, Canada's no better in lots of ways. There's been, you know, obviously atrocities that have been uncovered over the last just a couple of days, to be honest, which is really sad uh, with residential schools, uh, with the, you know, the murder of the Muslim family, which actually just happened like a block away from my house. Oh it's my not God. real happy. Yeah. So they were run over by a somebody who's actually being charged with terrorist actions, which is an interesting thing. It's a big change in legal proceedings where, oh, a white male just got charged with being a terrorist in Canada. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting case. Uh, we'll see where it goes. What's the difference between a hate crime and a dead terrorism? And you know, all these things are nuances that we're finally having to confront as a society, which is really interesting. You know, in, in terms of history, I hated history, hated it as a student when I was younger. But now that I'm older and I see how history kind of affects everything, everything that, you know, I am today is because of the history of my people. If we deny that history or we cover it up, we're denying a whole bunch of who we are. And it, you know, and the thing is like, I don't think of shame. I don't, shame is not a great motivator for anybody. My point about talking about race and culture and all these things is because if we don't talk about it, we are literally never going to get past it because it's not the individual stuff that affects us so much, really. It's the systemic stuff that really holds people down. That really is the oppressive part of it. Like, <laughs> this is like I tell people this all the time, like, hey, person in a white hood, I know who they are. I can walk away from them. I can, I can, I can defend myself against them. But when the government says things like, oh, you are not allowed to marry anybody of another color. Now we've got issues, right? Now there's some problems. You know, all these laws, like people just don't understand, like <laughs> things like anti-miscegenation laws, things like, you know, segregation laws were in the time span of our grandparents. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And people don't get that. People don't understand. Like, this was not ancient history. You know, they think, oh, slavery ended in whatever year it ended. It's like, yeah, but don't you understand? We're so angry now. Like, it's like, sometimes it's like half of the things that come out of, out of people's mouths. Just educate yourself because you're ignorant on the facts. LeVar Burton said this once, and this was an amazing thing to me. He said why he was so interested in reading Rainbow and, re and reading in general is he said uh, in an interview that, you know, 80 years ago, <laughs> it would have been illegal for me to do this. It would have been illegal for somebody to learn to read. Why? Because they were a person of color. 80 years. That's it. 
in the developmental sciences, which I study, you know, a generation is anywhere from 15 to 30 years. We're talking like maybe three or four or five generations. That's it. And when we talk about things like intergenerational trauma, we're looking at, you know, it takes a, a minimum, just a minimum. This is like the lowest amount possible. Seven generations for trauma to dissipate in a family. So things that happened to your family seven generations ago are likely to still affect you now, right? Wow. And then we think about things like 80 years ago, 90 years ago, which is really just, you know, five or six generations, three if you do the math the big way. Like if you think a generation is 30 years, then it's, you know, three. But usually we use about 15 because of cross generations. But anyways, my point being that it wasn't so long ago. And people just don't understand this. Why? Because it never affected them. They don't have the stories. They don't have the oral history. Why didn't we learn that in school? Because <laughs> nobody who is of color wrote any of those books that you are studying from. Otherwise, maybe you would. And maybe the world would be a better place uh, because of it. Because like covering all that stuff up makes your country look good. But it's like, it's like putting lipstick on a pig in a lot of ways, it's still a pig. So anyway, yes, I would, I would celebrate some of, the, some of the good things that happened in terms of changing race relations in North America, because it's, it's, an important, it's an important thing to commemorate when a society becomes better. Everything about that is better, right? It's, it's marketing better. Objectively, right. Yeah. You can look at the math and just say how better it is. The final word. Fail faster, make a minimum viable project, and save the stuff that you do eventually cut off for later days. There you go. It's three in one. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. No problem. I've enjoyed this talk. It's really good to talk to people live and and just see their faces and the reactions it's really good to to do that every now and then and this concludes another episode of demon does the six questions if you like what you heard tell the world by logging on to apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star rating and review you can also follow the show on facebook instagram and twitter at demon does you can also send any comments to demon does at gmail.com Next time, we'll talk games, Hot Wheels, and the role of being the favorite uncle with veteran game designer Andy Ashcraft. So, until next time, see it, hear it, speak it, live.